For a noticeably smooth shave, join Dollar Shave Club today. The Dollar Shave Club starter set includes razors, prep scrub, shave butter, and post-shave dew. All for just $9 on your first box. That's right, just $9. And the best part? Your box gets delivered straight to your door with free shipping. See why millions trust Dollar Shave Club for all their shaving and grooming needs. Get shaving and grooming products when you need it. Don't wait. Get the ultimate shave starter set from Dollar Shave Club today for just $9. This offer is limited to U.S. residents only. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash fwcars. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash fwcars. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 332 of the Fun with Cars Motorsports Podcast, or episode 19 of 2022. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who likes to place his beer in the warm summer sun, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. Uh, yeah, I like to warm my beer when it's actually in my stomach. It is Wednesday morning, June 29th, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Canadian Grand Prix and... I have an interview with Porsche factory driver Lorenz Vantor. Also, uh, I wanted to quickly congratulate Wayne Taylor Racing for winning at the six hours at the Glen, the IMSA race that, that was this past weekend. It was actually an accurate run, too, with Meyer Shank Racing finishing in second. But, Chris, something tells me you have some Formula One news to talk about. Well, there has been a lot of news, uh, especially as we're recording this post-Canadia Grand Prix. There was news leading up to it, and there's been news post. So we'll cover some of the highlights. Uh, we had the FIA issuing a technical directive on the bouncing of this generation of F1 cars. And uh, yes, that uh, elicited quite a response from Christian Horner and Matteo Bonotto at utter Mercedes-Benz bias in, uh, <laughs> in the F1 and FIA circles. Um so that was interesting. Uh, I think um, I think it's a good initiative. I think clearly this set of cars uh, all have in common some level of bouncing, and uh, that's as a result of the regulations. And so, therefore, something should be done to tweak them to to try and help the teams overcome this issue because it's clearly not great for the drivers, and it looks a bit daft. So, um, but the. The fact that Mercedes turned up to Canada with an extra floor stay within sort of 24 hours of the directive being issued really got uh, a few eyebrows raised up and down the pit lane. And, and, and why exactly? Was there something about the regulations that allowed that stay that would not have allowed it previously? Yeah, exactly. It allowed... Uh, an additional countermeasure to, to be deployed and and I think it wasn't it wasn't the the extra stay it was the speed with which the stay was added uh, so Horner was basically suggesting that Mercedes had advance notice that this was coming um, Gary Anderson was actually commenting that the act of adding an extra stay is a trivial exercise for an F1 team so he wasn't convinced by that accusation but um, but yeah I, I think um Mercedes removed the stay for the majority of the Canadian Grand Prix anyway, so it wasn't exactly uh, pivotal to their performance. Uh, so a lot of do, uh, uh, much ado about nothing, as Shakespeare might say. Mighty, uh, he would uh, he would have much to say, and he would probably say it a touch more elegantly than Christian Horner did, um, <laughs> though pot potentially that's debatable. Um, 
I had one bit of news that is l- uh, probably a lot less interesting to many folks, but uh, I think it's important to touch on. Anyway, um, uh, there's uh, this article that came out a few days ago, a couple days ago. F1 continues to push to hit a net zero carbon by 2030 target. And I thought this was fascinating. So we knew that uh, they switched to an E10 fuel, 10% ethanol fuel um, this year. But um, they are now um, taking steps forward to have a completely, the claim is at least, a completely sustainable fuel by 2026 and to also do things to um, reduce single-use plastics as well as um, improve the efficiency of travel and freight logistics. But um, the big thing is the sustainable fuel. And once again, Formula One is doing a great job of following leader IndyCar in such measures. Um, IndyCar is going to have a sustainable fuel next year and a sustainable fuel with a new engine in 2024. And Formula One is off to do the same in 2026. Oh, and by the way, that IndyCar engine will be hybrid as well. Yeah, I think that's all positive. Um, on another note, we've got Pierre Gasly re-signing for, uh, for uh, Alpha Tauri for 2023. So he'll be driving for them until the end of that year, uh, which kind of quashes the rumor that he was being lined up for uh, McLaren for next season. So that may that's right. help Daniel retain his seat for next year. And actually, Zach Brown was... Uh, trying to row back a little bit on his comments and saying that his relationship with Daniel is as good as it's ever been. And uh, so he got an awful lot more positive about... Uh, <laughs> so he's saying it was never very good then. <laughs> <laughs> what, I think what he, language he was using is what a great guy Daniel is, which no one was ever doubting. Um, how What that's got to do with his speed behind the wheel is kind of, you know, questionable but uh well yeah. he has he has been the top mclaren finisher the last couple if not i think it's a couple races if not three races anyway yeah okay that's a well, glass half is, full approach yeah. i mean his performance hasn't transformed has it but he, he certainly got a bit more respectable and he, he's had more of the yes. luck for sure but uh of course well, the luck, other news the luck wins championships chris mm. so you can you can you can ask uh, more than a couple of Formula One commentators on that subject. Of course, the big big story that's happened over the last sort of twenty four hours has been the Nelson PK racism row with Lewis Hamilton, <laughs> which is not so, funny. I don't know why I'm laughing, but honestly, it, it's, it's just it's, extraordinary. It's funny. It's it's funny in its uh, bizarreness. It's it's why why in twenty twenty two. Would you say such things about the most successful Formula One driver in history? It's it, it's baffling. So the hilarity of it, the funniness of just how shockingly bizarre it would be to do such things. Yeah, I mean, Nelson Piquet um, is, has always been a slightly controversial character. I mean, he, in his racing days, especially when he was racing Nigel Mansell back at uh, back with Williams in the in the mid eighties, eighty six and eighty seven. You know, he did used to like to come out with some fairly derogatory remarks about people, including Nigel and his wife. So he's no no stranger to courting controversy. Um, and but the whole quote uh, quote from the Silverstone accident at Cops last year is just utterly bizarre. I mean, his obviously derogatory term uh, about Hamilton and the way he he talks about Hamilton is shocking. 
But then his understanding of how to race through cops is also pretty strange. So, <laughs> honestly, Nelson, I think you've, uh, it's been a while since you were behind the wheel. Perhaps you should just go back to the beach. Tell me, is this, is this something, what, you don't have to quote it, but I never, what did he actually say? I just, I just read that he said something. I don't understand what he actually said. So he's talking, he's talking about the incident and he's talking in Portuguese, obviously, which is his native language. And he uses a term that begins with N, but isn't the N word that you and I might be thinking of. It's a different term. Um, and I'll let listeners look that up if they really are interested in what that term is. The quotes are out there. But it's essentially what Nelson is claiming is that that's a, that's a term used frequently in Brazil for sort of like that bloke, that chap. Um, but there are... So Portuguese... it's not even supposed to... Not, not necessarily supposed to be directed at a particular ethnicity... That's right. It's not supposed to be, he's arguing it's not supposed to be a racist term, but there are other Portuguese journalists who are saying, well, that's not quite true. It's actually a derogatory term generally for people of color. So there's some argument about that, that uh, the language Nelson used. Um, and if you read through the, the podcast transcript uh, that he gave, I mean, it, it is the whole, the whole discussion is very derogatory towards Lewis Hamilton and his race craft, you know, how he how he uh, collided with Verstappen that you know Lewis was completely at fault, and then you know he's he's not. I mean, most people would give some due respect to a seven-time world champion, um, but he's he's not even using his name. I mean, it's just bizarre the whole the whole language used in that incident. And it and it you know Nelson's now issued a, an apology, but it's it's pretty sad honestly, and he just should keep his mouth shut and. and clear off. I mean, I, I was hearing yesterday that he won't be allowed uh, back into F1 paddocks or events until he formally apologizes to Lewis personally. So the FIA and, and F1 are taking this pretty seriously. Yeah, it's such a weird thing, too, because his daughter is dating Max Verstappen. It's like, well, obviously, you know what side he's on of this issue. But at the same time, it doesn't take that much critical thinking to come to the conclusion that you should be more cautious, not less, than talking about these things because your bias is so clear and obvious to so many people. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, it's just, uh, I, I, I guess maybe he failed PR in college. He went to college, right? Probably, right? No one, <laughs> no one back then started racing until after college, right? I mean, why even, why is he even discussing it? I mean, this is old news. I mean, okay, we're coming up to the anniversary of it. Big deal. It's not like Hamilton and Verstappen are battling for the championship this year. Um, that, yeah, Verstappen won the title, right? So it wasn't like that incident cost him the title. Um, and, you know, you, we all debated it to death at the time and concluded it was a racing incident, um, even though, penal, uh, you know, Hamilton got a penalty for it, which he served and still won the race. I mean, to me, that this is a closed issue. Why are we still talking about it? He's drawing parallels with uh, the, the Prost-Senna crash at, the, at Suzuka. I mean, it's irrelevant. Really? It's a completely different situation. That's, that's a stretch. That yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Nelson, you know, you can't take away his three world titles. He was a good racer in his day, but his is thinking about modern F1 and, uh, and that incident in the context of previous uh, accidents seems to be very flawed indeed. Well, he's got a no good dirty mouth is what it is. And you know what? Speaking of things that are dirty. 
look, I think we all know keeping clean is important. And that's from head to toe and everywhere in between. <laughs> and for guys, I'm just so proud of my segue. And for guys, <laughs> there's some there's some important parts right in the middle that really deserve more care than a bar of soap. For this critical cleaning and grooming, the folks at Ballsy are here to help. A one-stop shop for all your fiddly bits, Ballsy carries trimmers as well as aptly named ball wash, sack spray, and more. And worry not! Ballsy is made from the good stuff, essential oils and plant extracts. No sulfates, parabens, synthetic dyes, and of course, no testing on animals. And it's made right here. All Ballsy personal care products are proudly produced in the USA and always will be. But perhaps you're not sure where to start. All good, because all you need to do is go to ballwash.com, scroll down, and take the quiz and get a customized system tailored to your personal needs. Or just grab what's called the Sack Pack, a trifecta of products to keep it all neat and tidy. Doesn't matter if you're shopping for yourself or an unkempt loved one, because Ballsy also sells a wide variety of gift sets to fit your needs and budget. With over 200,000 satisfied customers and a 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got to give Ballsy a try. And, Chris, I gotta tell you, I have to tell no chris i have to tell you i've tried and loved the two-headed trimmer from ballsy and i have to admit it's kind of fun to have products catered to my quite private privates chris no i had to tell you i had to tell you to join in the fun but you know like on your own go to ballwash.com slash fw cars and put in the promo code fw cars and you'll receive 20 percent off your order of 50 dollars or more that's 20% off when you go to ballwash.com slash FWCars and put in the promo code FWCARS. Yeah, I'm just so good at segues. I just, I such a, I mean, is that something I should put on my resume? Speaking of washing, I mean, it was pretty wet and qualifying, wasn't it? And, uh... <laughs> oh, Chris is trying to show off his segue skills too. But I think before we talk about qualifying in all seriousness, uh, moving swiftly on, the I think the number of power unit penalties is starting to to get up there, isn't it? We had Sonoda take a full PU change. His Less fourth than halfway into the season. Engine. It's kind of amazing where we are in the season and what we're seeing with engine penalties. Exactly, with Charles Leclerc taking a 10-place penalty as well for, um, for his electronic control unit change. So I think this is just going to be... The, the story of the second half of the season. I mean, we're not even into the second half yet and we already have people taking PU pens. So it doesn't look great for for Red Bull or Ferrari. And and uh, I think this could, could end up maybe deciding where the championship ultimately ends up. I mean, especially if Ferrari can get on a bit of a roll here um, and control the reliability issues, this could be, this could be quite decisive. Uh, Mercedes... Um, seem to be doing relatively well in, by comparison. Um, so it'll be certainly something to watch as, as uh, we continue through the second half. Uh, wet to dry qualifying. And Max Verstappen was supreme, wasn't he? I mean, just on a different level, you'd have to say, on, on, on that day. He, he really was. I mean, to a certain extent, he definitely benefited from the fact that uh, Leclerc wasn't competing in Q3. Um, you know, or Q2 for that matter. And his teammate Sergio Perez had issues in Q2. Um, so 
you know, Carlos Sainz was the closest he had to a top rival to compete against. And yeah, Carlos ended up being, what, boy, almost eight tenths off of Max Verstappen's ultimate pace in Q3. So yeah, he was kind of on his own. But in between those two, Fernando Alonso. Yeah, I mean, the thing that, that struck me about Max, though, just to touch on him again, was that you know, he'd set a lap time that would typically be a second or more quicker than everyone else. And then you'd have a couple of guys who'd go out and get close to his time and chop it down to like a tenth or two. And then he'd go out and set another one second you know, lap quicker. And he just kept doing that throughout throughout qualifying. He just seemed to have a huge amount in hand. And and you're right, Leclerc wasn't there. And I think also there was a lot of strategy around setups because most teams were expecting a dry race on Sunday. You can't change the cars between qualifying and the race on Sunday. So you basically had to pick a setup that would give you an opportunity in quali and then, you know, with one mind on on, on the race the following day. So if you'd gone for a super wet setup, you would have been super uncompetitive on Sunday. So there was some different strategies there, um, but but Max and the Red Bull were, were working really well, and uh, you have to give him and the team credit for that. But uh, yeah, Fernando rolled back the years, um, was was very feisty in quali, put it on the front row. Great effort. I think everyone was very happy to see him at the sharp end again, doing well in the LP. Yeah, um, it was great to see that pace from him from the Alpine as well, to a certain extent. But, it, you know, just to get that old Alonzo spark was nice. But, you know, he wasn't alone in having some great lap times. You know, Carlos Sainz, a solid third, but that's not really a surprise, that one. But Lewis Hamilton, it's just this... I'll tell you that Mercedes is showing another porpoising issue, and that's porpoising in results. You know, they're hot and cold, and it just goes bouncing back and forth. So, you know, here Lewis was, um, last Grand Prix, you know, having trouble getting out of the car, Azerbaijan, afterwards. Am I remembering correctly? It was Azerbaijan? Yep. Um, and then, And then the next race, he's in there, he's quick, and he's comfortable in qualifying. It was certainly not what we expected. And then, on, and then we saw uh, the Haas cars. Kevin Magnussen and Michael Schumacher, Schumacher, Michael, Mick Schumacher, fifth and sixth in the Haas. So the wet qualifying did bring out a proper string of uh, different uh, teams doing well and different drivers within those teams. And then uh, it was uh, George Russell, Daniel Ricciardo. So Daniel Ricciardo, the lead McLaren in ninth on Saturday, and then Zhao Guan Yu in the Alfa Romeo in tenth. Yeah, touching on Mercedes for a second, I mean, it was interesting that, that Mercedes split their strategy. So Hamilton had a slightly lower downforce, Russell a higher downforce setting uh, throughout qualifying in the race. Um, and I think the high downforce setting for Russell was what prompted him to, to really take the gamble on slicks, which honestly always looked like a really sizable gamble and he didn't make it past turn two before he spun. Um, and uh, I don't mind the gamble so much. I think it's you know they're in a position where they should be they should be trying to think out of the box and trying a slightly different strategy uh, to see if it can help them, but that it was just so wet through the first part of the lap you just could never really see it coming off, um, so yeah that that obviously helped Hamilton out uh, given that he was on the inters and qualified fourth he was never really 
Uh, I guess Mercedes made the comment that he set his lap a little bit earlier than Alonso and, and Carlos. So if he if he timed it slightly better, he might have got onto the onto the front row. But in reality, you know, none of those three, Alonso, uh, well, I guess we can exclude Sainz, but neither Alonso or Hamilton were really going to challenge Verstappen in the race where they, we really needed to see the, the Carlos-Max battle uh, on Sunday, which is what we got. Yeah, exactly right. Was there anything else about qualifying that stood out for you? Um, well, you, you mentioned Ricardo's performance um, at McLaren. I mean, it should be noted that Norris had his own power unit issue, um, which seemed to be intermittent. So they they could get the uh, the PU working and then all of a sudden it would cut out. So and they couldn't trace the fault. So they ended up having to put one of his other uh, engines in for the race. Um, so Norris was struggling with that all weekend, which definitely helped Daniel out. But uh, but that's really the only other comment I got. Well, the, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it should be uh, pointed out. I, I shouldn't have said made the point that he was the lead McLaren so much as I should have made the point that he was in Q3. Uh, that's been certainly less common for Ricardo than for uh, Norris, and uh, I think shows glimmers of hope. and And then let's add some hope to that it's sustainable this time. Yep, um, I did think has this performance was tremendous. I mean, you know, fifth and sixth on the grid uh, with with Kevin slightly ahead of Mick, a, a fine old effort. Unfortunately. It uh, it didn't work out for them over the uh, complete weekend, but you know certainly those two in the Haas um, in those conditions were were very um, very quick. So this you know, Haas is strange; they're having a strange old season because sometimes they are really competitive, and then other times they sort of fade away into obscurity again. But uh, but occasionally they they really nail it, and so well done to them. But. Oftentimes, it's either an on weekend or an off weekend for them. This time around, it was much more a, it was an on Saturday than an off Sunday. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so Mick Schumacher, you know, he didn't make it more than, wow, he didn't make 20 laps into the race uh, before he had an issue. Um, And then Kevin Magnuson was the last running car in the race, finishing 17th. Yeah, it didn't work out for them on Sunday at all, did it? Um, I don't know all the details, honestly, other than, you know, maybe they did go for a slightly wetter setup and that flattered them in qualifying. But I, I don't know why they faded so badly. Uh, uh, well, certainly Kevin faded so badly on Sunday. Curious. But they they were yeah. impressive on Saturday. But it was, I mean, what was rock solidly consistent was Max Verstappen, who just was, you know, he, the way the race panned out, he actually was threatened quite a bit on the last stint of the race, but really, I don't, I don't, I think everyone was pretty confident the whole way through that this was his race to lose, and uh, you know, especially early on, earlier on in the race, he was he was very comfortably in front. Yeah, he, you could say, basically controlled it throughout, didn't he? I mean, you know, fair play to Carlos. This was his strongest race of of. Uh, 2022 by far and he and he put in a good effort and he kept max honest um and ferrari tried to be uh inventive with their strategy to help him out but you know in a in a straight line uh race um you know the ferraris had a deficit to the red bull all season so it was always going to be a struggle for carlos to to find a way past and he, he was never he was never really quick enough out of the the hairpin was he to to really 
get a run on Max uh, at any any point during the Grand Prix. So Max certainly had it under control, uh, but you know, good good to see Carlos actually take the fight to him. Um, and so you sort of wonder where Charles might have been if he'd had a clean weekend. Um, but uh, but yeah, positive signs for Carlos. Uh, Leclerc did end up finishing fifth, so it was actually considering everything a pretty strong result for Ferrari, second and fifth. If you look back at the uh, results sheets from the last few Grand Prix, that's up there for them. I mean, with all the DNFs and everything else that's happened to them, uh, it, to a certain extent, you got to say, yeah, we'll take it. And for Leclerc to be able to get through the field as effectively as he did with the um, straight line deficit they have to Red Bull as an example. Um, yeah, I, I, there's still, I would say the Ferrari's not totally out of it just yet. Yeah, I mean, he needed, he really needed more, didn't he? I mean, you're right, it wasn't, it was a good, uh, a reasonably good damage limitation effort. Um, I think Ferrari were hoping that he would, he would get higher than fifth. Uh, I think they thought that they he could get past both Mercedes, but actually, you know, Hamilton and Russell showed de- decent enough pace on Sunday, um, and so they they you know it was too much for Leclerc, especially as he got caught behind Ocon and his his pit stop also was uh, was fluffed a little bit that cost him some time, so he did uh, struggle to make it through some of the the midfield runners, uh, which cost him a, a higher finishing position, but. You know, ultimately, you know, if Ferrari want to win a championship this year, they've got to they've got to start stringing together, you know, wins. They've got to start finishing ahead of of Max. Uh, so we'll have to see if they can they can start to do that uh, at Silverstone this weekend. We had uh, Mercedes three four again, just like we did in the opening round, um, but this time uh, not because all the Red Bulls retired, but because their pace was not. The same as the top two, but definitely a lot closer. And just as you said earlier, it was, you know, there were these porpoising discussions going on, but that ultimately it was effectively the same car that they had in Azerbaijan. Yeah, I think ultimately it was uh, given the nature of the track, you know, high speed track that's fairly bumpy, um, you know, it's a temporary track. You know, people expected the Mercedes to struggle. They actually performed maybe slightly better than they were anticipating going into the weekend. Um, and I think a three-four is about as good a result as they they might have hoped for. Um, Mercedes certainly aren't giving up the development. They're going to be a, a fairly sizable package to Silverstone by all accounts, and uh, that track should suit them a bit better. So, you know, there's still a possibility that Mercedes may join the fight for wins uh, at uh, one or two races uh, in the, this year. Because one of the big the big talking points that's starting to get going here is that um, Lewis Hamilton has never failed to win a race in any of his seasons in Formula One. He's won it every single season he's competed in, and uh, right, he's, yeah. he's, he's actually tied for that that with that his current record with Michael Schumacher. So obviously they're tied on seven titles. They're tied for this record of continuous wins in in uh, F1 seasons. So, you know, speculation starting to mount that he may not be able to win this year and therefore he would remain tied with Schumacher. So, you know, I think I'm sure he's highly motivated as uh, the Mercedes teams uh, seems to be to, to try and still make the uh, their unlucky number 13 um, 
car actually be competitive at some point or at some places. Um, so Silverstone, we'll see, will be a good test of that. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, at the same time, race wins aside, you know, here they are clearly behind um, Red Bull and Ferrari in terms of pure pace. And yet, look at the championship standings. 304 for Red Bull, 228 for Ferrari, 188 for Mercedes. And they're not, they're not falling way back. They're still within that fight. Obviously, Red Bull has got a healthy, healthy chunk of points at the moment. But um, if they can get their car sorted, they've definitely done a very effective job at mitigating the woes that they've had so far. Yeah, that's true. I, I think they're they're out of it for this year in terms of titles. Honestly, I think now the question is, can they can they get closer to the ultimate pace of the Red Bull or the Ferrari, and can they actually compete for a win uh, at some point this season? Um, I don't think they're going to do better than third. Maybe if Ferrari's reliability continues to be a problem, they might be able to to compete for second. Uh, but uh, that would see, seems to be a stretch, honestly. Uh, I mean, interestingly enough, so Red Bull, you know, it's a fairly new team still in my mind to Formula One. 82nd win for Red Bull in Canada. That puts them fifth in the all-time team list of race wins. They actually overtook Lotus, one of the storied uh, names, obviously, from the 60s and 70s. Um, So quite an interesting um, milestone for them. And now Verstappen moves on to 26 wins, ninth all-time he passes Jim Clark and uh, Nicky Lauda, two great names of the sport. So, you know, Max and Red Bull are getting up there in the in the list of uh, the all-time F1 greats. I feel the need to throw in a caveat here, which is <laughs> <laughs> there are many more races in the calendar to stack up such wins. And obviously, reliability is different now than it was back in the uh, back in the uh, earlier days so uh, with with I, those two caveats in mind yes it is definitely impressive yeah I, I i couldn't agree more i mean jim clark in my mind is, is has to be in the conversation for one of the all-time greatest drivers um you know a guy who could win in any any type of uh, wheeled vehicle um and was acknowledged by his uh, competitors at the time to be the greatest F1 driver on the grid, uh, you know, during the, the early 60s. And, of course, he was taken far too soon at a F2 race in Hockenheim. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, still, you've got to give um, Verstappen some credit, you know, four more uh, shifts of 26 wins, and he'll be into Hamilton category. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the fun little English jabs. Uh, they're they're always great. Um, so uh, Sergio Perez had a dreadful weekend. He, you know, uh, as we talked about, he was out in Q two, but then what did he make? You know, fifteen laps, if that, uh, seven laps, and he was out just like that. I think he, I think it was, was it gearbox or hydraulics? There was something where I, I. I don't think the engine, it, he couldn't shift anymore. And it kind of locked itself in place. I think it was gearbox, but I don't know if, what the exact root cause of the gearbox failure. But uh, yeah, not, not a, as we said earlier, not a, not a great weekend for Perez. Uh, that now puts him, what, almost 50 points behind his teammate, uh, close to two race wins. So 
um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's another supporting job for 2022 for Sergio, I think. Yes, uh, I think that's that's fair. Now, what did you think about Alfa Romeo and Alpine performance? It was interesting to me the way the race shook out that Ocon ended up comfortably ahead of Alonso after Alonso had that just fantastic qualifying. Yeah, Alonso had some problems, didn't he, with the car? He had some some reliability issues that didn't put him out, but but certainly was was uh, causing him problems with his race pace. And then, yeah, his defence was so robust that the FIA penalised him. So he got a five second penalty um, for direction changing um, direction changes in the braking zone or going. I mean, into he the was weaving. I mean, he just he was. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, it was. He was very excited at starting second, wasn't he? And I think he really hoped that he could he could pit Verstappen off the line to lead a lead a race again, um, and uh, that didn't work out. And then he just started tumbling down the order, and I think he was probably just fairly frustrated. Um, you know, which I love. I love the fact that he's still got that that uh, fire in his belly and desire to, to to compete and win. So good for him. It didn't work out for him on Sunday, but you know. Uh, I'm sure we'll see other opportunities. Uh, yeah, Ocon's a funny character, isn't he? He doesn't really ever just wow you with his pace, but somehow he sort of creeps into these decent finishing positions. Uh, not not really anything Grand to say winner. about Oh, yeah, well, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be the only one. I'll go on record as saying that. But, um, yeah, I, the Alfa Romeo's... I, I, I now think Ocon's going to win the English, the British Grand Prix. <laughs> just to spite you the racing gods will rain down on Ocon and bless him with another victory yeah I mean you know he was mighty in fending off uh, Sebastian Vettel at the Hungara ring Mm. so yeah the Alphas yeah quietly impressive midfield runners this season and uh, uh, Zhao got his um, best finish in Formula 1 so far seems to be doing all right. Uh, doesn't seem to be on Botas's pace, but uh, you know he's a rookie, so you wouldn't expect that this early in this, in his first season. Um, yeah, they're doing okay. And what of McLaren? Yeah, not good, was it? They're outside the points. They got uh, Daniel got pit by uh, Lance Stroll, so not an ideal weekend. Um, Stroll put in one of his better race performances. I mean, you got to give him credit, actually. Home Grand Prix. Uh, yep, he's not had Canada, a, leave Canadian driver. Yeah, he's not, a had a, not had a great, uh, not had a great season so far. Um, and you know, he he was he started 18th, but uh, he did quite a bit of the passing on Sunday and and pulled uh, pulled out a point for Aston Martin. So fair play to to Lance. Finished ahead of his teammate and got the point in uh, in his home Grand Prix. Yeah, no, it's it, it ha- you have to give a little bit of credit. You don't have to give more than a little bit of credit, but you have to give it a little. Um, but yeah, McLaren to have their lead driver finish 11th. That's tough to see, you know, and yet they are still fourth in the constructors. It's an, it's an interesting time to see these results because, uh, you know, which can be expected to a certain degree with a brand new classification of cars, new rules, everything else. But that, McLaren is fourth in constructors and yet sometimes in the way, way back and then sometimes struggling for strong points. It's it's a very up and down season for them. There doesn't seem to be any consistency yet. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. 
It's funny, the midfield battle, though. Uh, I had to catch this on one of the F1 uh, videos that they post subsequent um, to the race. So they do the best onboards over the weekend, and they captured a really lovely battle uh, in the midfield. So we had Magnussen, Stroll, Gasly and Albon all fighting it out um, in sort of the lap 56, 57 uh, part of the race. And we had Stroll making the pass on Magnussen and Albon uh, also managing to slip by Gasly. Um, and it's a really lovely little little racing sequence that, uh, you know, it's worth worth checking out. So it just shows how how tight and competitive the middle order is, really. You've got four different cars there, um, all all fairly similar pace. So, you know, the guys who managed to, to uh, sneak through and, and win a point, you know, they're, they're working hard to earn it. And those four cars are McLaren, Alpine, Alfa Romeo, and Alfa Tauri? Or are you including Aston Martin in that sometimes? Or are you including Haas in that sometimes? I mean, that, well, that's what's interesting about You could argue it's actually five teams that are really in the mix, but they're switching places of <laughs> who's competitive on what weekend. Right. I mean, in this particular battle, you've got Aston Martin, Haas, Alfa Tauri, and Anna Williams, right? And... Um, uh, you know, if you look at the finishing order, um, you know, Albon did finish ahead of Gasly um, and and uh, Magnussen. So although Williams sometimes seems to be way off it, um, you'd have to argue based on Albon's finishing 13th and ahead of some of those midfield teams that that's not always the case on a Sunday. So, you know, there is that midfield is pretty big, <laughs> really. Um, yeah. You know, I think the top three teams, and I, you know, Mercedes do seem to be slightly clear of the midfield, uh, certainly on on Sundays. Uh, it pretty much encompasses the balance of the seven, doesn't it? That they're all in there, and and as you said, they, they it comes and goes depending on the the nature of the track and how well they set up and how well they control the porpoising. Um, yeah, any one of those seven teams can be, you know, leading the midfield pack or or right at the back. You know, who knows? Well, Williams, Williams, it. it goes more than it comes and also uh, Williams most clearly it's a one driver game for that midfield uh, competition I mean Latifi is just he does not have his head around this car yet yeah I, I can't disagree with that he did somehow finish ahead of Kevin Magnussen but uh, you know maybe K-Mag just parked it up half a lap early or something went and got a beer <laughs> <laughs> now do the Danes like it as warm as you? Where would where would the Danes put that beer? Give me a temperature. Yeah, so I think the Danes are sensible in that they like their, their beer slightly above, you know, uh, absolute zero on the Kelvin scale, um, which, you know, Americans, I think, like it at like 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2 degrees, don't they? Um, yeah, see, that's what I think. I think that uh, the Europeans have confused... The Kelvin scale with the Celsius scale. So they're like, yeah, 270, 280. That's about right. It's like, no, no, that's actually very, very warm. Very, very warm. <laughs> Celsius is not absolute. It's not absolute scale, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here to tell you. Um, yeah. You know, it's a misconception that the Brits like warm beer that you, you, you know, you're no, perpetuating. No, I, it is a conception <laughs> I have lived and experienced with my own taste buds, with my own warm hands after touching my pints of beer. No, that is not a misconception. I, I think what happens, Robin, is you probably entered the pub 
talking about Brits like he warmed beer. So someone poured a perfectly good pint and then stuck it in the microwave for a minute or two and then handed it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, speaking of warm beer and Europeans, I think this is a great time to jump to my interview with Lawrence Vantor. We talk about Le Mans, Porsche, and just uh, being a race car driver in general. Lawrence Vanthor, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me. Um, first and foremost, how do you pronounce your name? Well, I think if I say it in my language, uh, I've, I've tried it in America, uh, not without much success. I say Lawrence, but I guess nobody can really pronounce it. That's why pretty quickly when I was in the States, everybody started to call me Larry. So <laughs> I, I, I take that as my American name. <laughs> well, it's 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 a lovely name to be sure, but... It, uh, and it, would you is it Vantor? The th is not, not it's not a th sound, is it? Uh, well, in Dutch you say Vantor. Vantor. Yeah. Am I close? Again, difficult to pronounce. Yeah, you're. I mean, you're quite close. Yeah, but okay. Still, not not the usual accent for for Americans or non non Dutch speaking people. Obviously. I just want to open by saying that um, I love chocolate. And I also very much enjoy mayonnaise on my French fries. So, um, that start. <laughs> and uh, I, I've never, I've never raced in Belgium, of course, but I was lucky enough to once go to the 24 Hours of Spa, mm -hmm. and um, so witness Spa, see it, and also, as a corollary, see uh, the Belgian countryside and the beautiful forests, and it's just. What an amazing, beautiful place, just naturally. And then that racetrack is just one of the best in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm used to that. I'm, I'm growing up here. But uh, me, on, on the contrary, I love being in the States uh, as well. So I think it's you know, it's very different worlds. But both, uh, I mean, I appreciate both in their, in their ways. So Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about how you got into racing a little bit because like so many uh, road racing drivers, you started in karting and then in formula cars, single seater formula cars, and jumped straight into Formula Three. In fact, um, what what drove you to get into racing in the first place, and then what made you switch to the sports car side of things? Um, oh, I'll try and keep it obviously short because by now there's some years which has passed, but. Um, the reason why I got to racing is pretty much it's it's kind of it was kind of a family thing. I mean, my my grandfather used to to race just for fun. Um, then my father did the same, a little bit more serious, but just still for fun, not not professional. Um, then my mom, she grew up next to uh, Zoller racetrack, literally next to it, so she obviously knew what it was and and she liked it. So I was kind of you know, growing up with it, watching with my family Formula One and, and following motorsports and going to watch my dad race. And then at a certain age, I, I got a go-kart. And, um, you know, that's how, how everything started. Then after a couple of years, obviously, you know, when you're a kid and you're young, you always dream of doing Formula One. I mean, it's, I think it's everybody's dream as, as, a, as a child. Um, so I got my try into doing uh, single seaters. Um Back in the day, um, my, let's say, driver, coach and go-karts was Jan Hayden, who's now mm. uh, racing successfully in IMSA as well and, and done other successful racing in the U.S. Um, and he actually advised me to go straight into Formula 3. 
which was back then very, let's say, unnormal. Um, and that's what I did. Um, long, I mean, I can talk an hour about it, but uh, long story <laughs> short, um, I did my best. I won the German championship, got second in Macau. Um, had a fair amount of good races, but you know how it works, in my opinion, to get into Formula One, it's uh, or you are extremely talented, like there's only a handful in the world by the likes of Verstappen or Hamilton or Leclerc, where you're so good that somebody will see you, pick you up, and give you give you a chance to get there. Or you're as good as 20, 30, 40 others worldwide, and, and you know you depend on on other things to get there, knowing the right people, having the money or whatever. Um, let's say I don't consider myself to be one of those uh, handful of extremely talented. Uh, I consider myself in the, in the other group, and I didn't have the um, you know the extras to to get there. And I think at the young age I was pretty quickly aware of that and um, at that point I got a chance um, through some people actually I didn't know to start racing in GTs um, and then you know my goal by doing that was trying to become as quickly as possible a factory driver it was an Audi back in the day and with the ultimate goal to eventually you know drive Le Mans in, in, in the LMP1 car um, at Audi um, which they were still doing back then, and um, you know that's then how my career started rolling in in, um, in sports cars. And yeah, after half half a year, I actually did already got my first uh, let's say professional contract as as a paid race car driver. And for me, that was a milestone achievement because the reason why I do this is because I love racing. I love racing cars, and the only way you can do that until you're too old fat and slow is <laughs> as if you're getting paid by it because you know you cannot fund this forever exactly right so that was my goal and, and i achieved that on that way yeah, reasonably quickly and then you know everything involved until ramsing day well you as you already stated you got the chance to be an audi factory driver but then as of 2017 uh, you became a porsche factory driver uh, what has that been like to be a part of the uh, Porsche family? I mean, it's 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 been incredible. I think, you know, to come back a bit at Audi, I was uh, I was always wishing and hoping to be, like I said, to be driving the LMP1 car, and I was I was getting closer and closer. And actually, at that year, I think 16, I was I was super close. I mean, I was knocking at the door at you know the door handle in my hand, and, <laughs> and then they stopped the program. Um, which for me then kind of stopped my future perspective at Audi. And I had this exact conversation with Dr. Ulrich, who was uh, boss back in the day. And uh, he asked me what opportunities did I have and what was my goal for the future. And I, I talked to him about Porsche. And uh, he actually then in an Audi meeting advised me to do that and even called Frank Welleser, who was back in the day uh, the boss, to, to advise him to take me. and. Frank later admitted to me that was one of the main reasons he actually did because Dr. Ulrich uh, spoke to him about it. And and then my career at Porsche started. I mean, I always put it pretty simple. Which race car driver doesn't want to race for Porsche? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I haven't heard of, about one yet. <laughs> uh, it's such a, 
a legendary brand in in in, in sports car racing or in, in racing in general. I think it's you know part of a 911 to be to to be involved on, on on a track and to be involved in racing. And now a couple of years later, I think it was two or three years ago when I went to the Porsche Museum and I had actually two cars standing there with my name oh. on it. <laughs> oh, something wow. that'd be great. It yeah. still gives me goosebumps today to be to be part of a brand you know with so much history and so renowned to yeah to be to be one of their their drivers yeah well i i've been lucky enough to speak with um uh, both of these guys several times hurley haywood and patrick mm-hmm. long and yeah. you know hurley haywood still very much part of, of porsche and uh you know still very much in love with the brand and and patrick long you know recently left full-time racing and he still very mm-hmm. much wants to be involved with the brand and you know you could look at uh walter roll and uh how he continues to work with porsche you know it's it's you know it's a long-term thing with porsche and i think you know to reference your older maybe a little slower maybe a little bit more kilos on the scale but uh, you're still part of the porsche family and that and that's uh nice to have that uh that long-term track exactly yeah so Part of being with Porsche uh, was racing here in the United States in IMSA, and uh, that would be when you got to know um, the U.S. road racing world. It's slightly different than Europe um, in terms of the type of tracks we have and the style of racing, and indeed, to a certain extent, the relationship among the different drivers. What was that like being introduced into the uh, the North American, the U.S. style of road racing? At first, it was an absolute shock, but but not for particularly on on on, on the American side. I mean, when I when I joined Porsche, I straight away started in IMSA, and I pretty much arrived in Daytona, being completely new to Porsche, um, never driven a car before having to discover all the tracks this season, being in a new championship with new rules, uh, driving on different tires, you know, everything was different. And I I felt like I just started racing two weeks ago. <laughs> um, it, was, it wasn't it was easy in, in the beginning, um, that's for sure. But uh, over time, I, you know, I started to find my way. And now I, in all honesty, I absolutely love racing in IMSA. It's you know, the last, was it? four years five years is the most fun and racing i've i've ever had and i also i i like being in america i did that before i started racing in america and i always had this wish to you know to one day do some racing there and uh, because i just you know love being there i always went to to florida every year on holiday for three four weeks um and um, together with the whole family and um yeah, just I just like being there and the, the way racing works. It's it's, I mean, politics are always always in sports and racing, but it's it's just a way of, you know, uh, say less bullshit. Um, <laughs> if there's a bit of contact, or you leave pit lane with wheel spin, or you know, uh, see what happens sometimes in NASCAR. It's you no, know, it's sports. It's emotions, and 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 that's what I what I like about it. And then. The even bigger factor is the tracks. You know, it's it's real proper, let's say, grown-up men race tracks with asphalt, grass, and and a wall. And 
that's in my opinion how it should be because that's how you bring up the adrenaline and the emotions when you're when you're racing and um, yeah all those things together just makes it that I that I absolutely loved love the time that I've spent there um, unfortunately this year I'm, I'm, I'm back racing more in, in Europe or I shouldn't say unfortunately but I must say that I do miss it um, and hopefully hopefully be back one day for to be a bit like uh, more frequently yeah, well, it's funny. I was going to ask exactly that because you were in this year's 24 Hours of Daytona, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, haven't been since. So it means you missed um, 12 Hours of Sebring. You missed the Glen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some of the big, big IMSA events. And uh, uh, But you did get to be a part of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is about mm-hmm. as big as it gets in the racing world, certainly in the sports car world. Um, you ended up finishing fourth in class, not quite on the podium, but at the same time, uh, Porsche did win in class. So is that bittersweet for you or is it just bitter? Like you wanted to be the team winning car and the fact that it's Porsche just makes it sting a little more, or is it like, well, at least Porsche won. I mean, it's always, it's always a difficult subject because I mean, I don't, I don't like the political answers. So I always try and, and say it most straightforward as I, as I can without getting too much in trouble. But um, obviously, when you are there, you want to win. I mean, you want to beat the other Porsche and you want to be the car and the crew, the guys, drivers who win the race. Um, even though, you know, you're paid by Porsche to have a Porsche win. You know, the, the boss doesn't really care if it's, which car it is but you know i wouldn't be an athlete or we wouldn't be successful in what we do if if we didn't have this desire to be to be you know the guys who want to win and not not care so yeah i mean i think we had a really good chance of winning and it's say kind of sucked that we didn't because things happened um on the other hand you're happy that the other car won for the people in your team because they you know they had they achieved the goal. Porsche achieved the goal, um, so you're you're happy for them. And I was generally happy for my, you know, the guys driving that car uh, that they won because they deserve it as well. But I'm mean, not going to wrap the story around it. Uh, I wish it would be us. And we, I think, up to then we were uh, having a very good race. And I think I can honestly say that we were in a position to to win. And I think we had a, a more than fair chance at that point but it didn't work out you know that's the way racing goes so um it's always you know you always have mixed emotions about and that's that's just how it is the drivers who say that i know uh, i don't care i was happy that 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 my brand won they had a lot of good media training or or they don't care so much that's how i always (laughs) see it they're they're good liars (laughs) (laughs) so um what about the fact that uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans was actually held in June? This was actually the first time since the pandemic that it was, because it was uh, 2020, it was September, and then uh, last year it was August. Was there something just a little bit more wholesome, a little bit more satisfying that it was back in its traditional date? Yeah, because it was first year again that we had spectators, um, and you know the specialty about Le Mans is such it's such a mythical race um, about often and, and beside the track. If you the parade we had this year was 
I mean, I felt it was more crazy than normal, the amount of people uh, and, and the fans. And that's what's making them more special. You know, you can cross pretty much everybody on the street. If they know the, the word motorsports, they probably know them all. Um, so everybody knows it and that's what makes it special. And then to have the people back there, you know, makes that a bit more alive than versus when we're doing the pandemic. So it was definitely, you know, more back to standard and, 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 and a more an emotional, let's say, mythical weekend. And the parade is such a wonderful part, wonderful tradition of uh, Le Mans and just the crowds of people and just the hours where people are just cheering and celebrating. And uh, I, I would imagine that that's, that does fill your spirit a little bit, maybe gets you just a little bit more pumped up, but uh, you're professional after all. I'm sure you're plenty quick regardless. No, but I think it's, I don't remember who it's, who said it, but it's, it's the only moment like we, for an hour, we feel like we're rock stars. <laughs> everybody's <laughs> screaming and waving. And, and uh, it's, it's still every time, first time when I did it, I was, I mean, couldn't, didn't know what to say. Um, and, but even now, for fifth or even sixth time I went there, um, it's still, it's still stays special. So. Uh, come to Michigan. Um, where I live, and uh, um, whenever I see you, I'll just scream and wave and uh, make you feel like a rock star. That's my gift to you. Um, this year, though, what you're doing most of the time is uh, uh, DTM, and I'm curious. It, it's it's ironic to me. It's you know Deutsche Touring Touring Masters, and yet there's only been one race in Germany so far. Uh, well, two races, one event. What, what's the DTM been like? Uh, how does that compare to, because it's only one class of racing, correct? So that, that makes it a little simpler, I would imagine. But do you enjoy that racing? Different, better, worse? It's definitely very different because what I was doing last year in uh, IMSA was mainly endurance racing. Uh, and this is like really pure sprint racing, 50-minute races or 55. So it's it's definitely very different. Um, it is very famous in, in Germany and Europe, you know, under the, the, the German manufacturers. So it's it's a big championship, um, but it is indeed very very different to to IMSA. So it's still taking some uh, some time to get used to it. Um, in all honesty, so far it hasn't been running very smoothly. I mean, mm. I think we haven't had success yet, but. Um, the team Porsche and myself were renewed to the championship and there's teams and manufacturers in there for over 10 years so you know I would say you can't expect to come there and after two weekends show everybody who's boss I mean it doesn't <laughs> work work that easy so because of that so far obviously not enjoying it that much because you I mean you enjoy more when you're winning um, but it's it's definitely an interesting challenge again learning new things and I am also convinced that we will start to be successful uh, soon, but yeah, it hasn't been very easy so far. That's just the reality. Yeah, it's 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 very different. It's difficult to to compare, actually, to be honest. Okay. Well, I I do want you to compare one more thing for me, though, if you could. I'm curious how the uh, RSR Porsche 911 versus this GT3 R how how are they different in terms of in terms of feel is power grip i mean how do you uh, look at those two different cars actually everything is pretty much a level up um in everything uh in terms of 
grip because you have confidential tires in terms of aerodynamics. Engine-wise, you know, uh, main difference is the the place of the engine. Uh, the RSR, it's it's on a Cayman-based chassis, so the engine is actually more in the middle to help the aerodynamics of the car and the weight distribution. Um, you don't have so much easy aid systems, I call them, like ABS, which we uh, have on yeah, the sure, GTR. Sure. Um, and furthermore, the car is a lot open on, on setup-wise, development, electronics. Uh, there's a lot more tools with to play. Uh, I would just simply say it's more of a race car in every aspect. Um, and that's so you, the GT3R is more of a race car. That's the higher level. Is no, the RSR. The RSR is a higher RSR. level. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and therefore, that's obviously more enjoyable to drive uh, because of that reason. Um, everything, you know, it's 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 really purely made on, on like a factory race car, the RSR, whereas the GT3R. If you tomorrow win the lottery, or maybe I don't know, you earn pretty good money with, <laughs> with whatever you do, you can go on to Porsche dealer and, and buy one. It's it's a customer car, obviously, so that's it's a different philosophy, which is normal. Um, so yeah, that's that's the areas where they are um, quite different. I I thought I thought the GT3 R was a little bit more the obtainable car. Um, but at first, I thought you were saying it was the higher level, so that confused me a bit. And okay. I would, I would very much be interested in going to a Porsche dealer and doing exactly that. But I'd have to first check to see if my son's car seat would fit in it. Um, but that's, uh, second, that's problems for later. <laughs> so um, it, it, the cars they have a lot of similarities, but the RSR is ultimately a little bit more enjoyable because you can cater it to your exact driving style mm-hmm. exact knees a little bit better it sounds like yeah 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 exactly. well uh lawrence or larry or uh mr vantour uh thank you so much for taking the time is a uh, great to talk with you and learn a little bit about uh life as a porsche driver no, you're very welcome um always always there to uh to answer some questions My pleasure well, remember, uh, just Detroit Metro, I'll come there screaming and yelling, and I'll, call, I'll even call you a rock star if you wish. Yeah, the one-hour rock star a year is enough, actually. If it's fun, but I think if you have to have it every day, uh, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not ready to become a Hollywood uh, star yet. <laughs> I appreciate it. Of course, of course. Have a good evening. Thank you. Yeah, great conversation with Lawrence. Really appreciate getting his uh point of view of things and also learning a little bit about the uh, various 911 based race cars so really appreciate that robin did you catch any of the uh, festival festival of speed footage over the weekend i did i did catch a little bits of it it was uh, max chilton putting in a quite mighty run up the hill um and uh you know a few lovely cars parked around yeah i saw it well it's the 30th anniversary of old mansell's uh championship and uh, he was reunited with the FW14B for a run up the Lord March's driveway. And, um, yeah, that was great to see to see him back behind the wheel of such a, a wonderful car. Uh, and there were a few other F1 drivers and F1 cars um, out and about, as well as many other uh, racing uh, cars, of course. But, uh, yeah, it was great as, as ever. The weather looked wonderful, and it was um, well worth checking out on YouTube or or Goodwood's uh, own uh, website if you want to see some footage of some great, great car and drivers. Now, there is plenty of champagne at Goodwood, and that is kept plenty cold, I will say. Um, 
but yeah, no, it, that, it's just a fantastic event. I love uh, the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And here's a controversial take. I prefer it to the revival. Um, and the reason is, is you're not expected to dress up in old clothes. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to pull out your grandpa's closet and start putting on, you know, World War II era outfits. And, uh, yes, I prefer racing around a racetrack than climbing a hill too, but I'd rather just wear the clothes I have. I think, uh, so I've been to the Festival of Speed, but I haven't been to the Revival. My understanding is if you go to the Revival and you plan to head into the paddock area, yes, you are expected to sort of join the party and dress in period clothing from like 1960s uh, era. But if you just want to go... Nin- and- World War Two to 1960s. True, yeah. As, a, as I understand, like late 60s is as n- new as you can go. Right. Uh, but if you want to just go and enjoy the weekend and watch racing, you can just wear whatever clobber you've got on and head to other parts of the track is is, uh, is my uh, take on it. But I will say the Festival of Speed, when I first went there, I was a bit mystified what all the fuss had been about until I headed into the paddock. And it's just in, incredible. Just incredible. Oh, my God. <laughs> just the, the cars most... and the history. Oh, oh, the access, yeah. the, the, you know... The, the people you'll see, the cars you'll see. I mean, it's just the most wonderful place on earth, honestly, for, for petrol heads. Incredible, incredible. I mean, you, you might also, if you watch some of the clips, wonder why people get so excited about watching F1 cars trundle up the hill at 50 miles an hour. And, that you know, it, that's not what it's about. It's about accessibility uh, and being able to see these things up close and, uh, yeah. and a lot of drivers up close. And that's what makes it so special. I was I was walking around the paddock when I, I went in 2017, and I was walking around the paddock, just bopping about, seeing one amazing car, after, and then just parked on the grass, just like anything else. The FW14B was just taken out. Yeah, no one <laughs> even like, looking at it. Oh no one paid attention I'm to like, it. That's the car. That's <laughs> the car. And it was just there. Just yeah, and it was just amongst the hundreds of amazing things that were there. Yeah, exactly. And and, and everyone's just so casual about it you know it's just there's no there's no ego around it which that i think is the most amazing and the best part about it yeah it's complete sensory overload you just can't believe all of this amazing amazing racing machinery from you know the last however many decades is just sat there um and uh, people you know people can 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 get really up close i've got a wonderful picture of my daughter sitting in a in a pre-World War II auto union because uh, the mechanic mm. uh, uh, just picked her up and plonked her behind the wheel. So, <laughs> I mean, just just a fantastic event, really. Well worth the trip if you, uh, if you get the chance. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've got a lot of just wonderful racing coming up this weekend. Um, all the big players are racing this weekend. Of course, not least of which is the British Grand Prix. That is coming up this weekend, July 1 through 3. And IndyCar will be at Mid-Ohio, of one of America's great classic racetracks in Ohio. That's also July 3rd. And IMSA, <laughs> I mean, these are just... IMSA is going to what's called the Chevrolet Grand Prix. But that race is at the Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, which is Mossport. So, and Mossport is just... Just a brilliant, high-speed, amazing, crazy place. I absolutely love it there. And that's just outside of Toronto. So there's a lot of racing happening in the Midwest 
here in the United States and then um, in the Midwest of England <laughs> at the British Grand Prix. Yeah, I don't think Silverstone's ever been described as being in the Midwest of England. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I well, mean, it's not a big until place. Now. You can maybe get away with it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of roughly sort of in the middle, is it not? It is kind of roughly sort of. And, you know, you could say it's on the west side of the middle. I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. All right. But, but anyway, all of that, all of that is just your warm-up for wonderful YouTube videos. <laughs> and I am kind of being serious here because um, in the, my, you know, we missed last week, so I couldn't tell you about it then. But I was able to um, spend a few days in the 2022 Porsche 911 GT3. <laughs> that car is something. <laughs> that, was it was it that, that bad was it something just awful was oh it? man oh man I, I seriously if if you distill my video to me just laughing out loud it would still be five minutes long <laughs> thing is such a, it's such a crazy performing laugh and then the flip side of it but also really just as cool in a lot of ways um i spent a i spent a week in the ford maverick so ford's new teeny tiny truck this truck is bigger than the Hyundai Santa Cruz, which I know you know about, but only by four inches. So this is much, much smaller than a Ranger and obviously tiny compared to an F-150. But it's got a lot of neat little tricks as well. So what would you take then, the 911 or the Maverick, Robin? Well, I would take the Maverick because the 911 would require, um, you know, first degree bank robbery. Is that a degree thing? Um, it, it would be, it would be extra legal for me to get my hands on a GT3. <laughs> yeah. Did but you, you want to know, do you want to know something? Here's, here's a fun fact. And I, I'm not kidding. <laughs> what I'm about to say is kind of a, actually both of those cars are about equally hard to get right now <laughs> in terms of availability. So <laughs> if, if your disposable income is high enough, good luck trying to get either. Yeah, it's bonkers, isn't it? The whole market is just utterly bizarre at this at this point. But uh, yeah, the, the, did you drive the hybrid Maverick? I did indeed. That's exactly right. And it's really interesting the way things work out because um, I drove the hybrid uh, Maverick. That is front wheel drive only. You cannot get a hybrid all wheel drive Maverick. You have to get the turbocharged two liter Maverick, which is, of course also has more power and has the potential to tow more as well. So. Uh, it's fascinating that that was the case, but um, I need you to ask me how much the Maverick costs. I, I've, I've been well, waiting I was, for this for months. I was going to say, so you know, Ford dispensed with most of their car lineup, uh, so they didn't really have anything that regular folk could really buy without taking out a seven-year car loan. Um, and I know that this truck is an attempt to to try and poach some some buyers. Uh, at the lower end of the market, and uh, is they're basically their their cheapest car that's sold in the United States. So I think it retails at the bottom end for like twenty grand without destination. So probably uh, um, you could probably get into a Maverick for twenty one, twenty two thousand dollars, which is quite a bit cheaper than pretty much anything else in their range, I think. But I'm sure you could still load it up and get it for thirty thirty five grand if you if you wanted to. Uh, all of what you said is uh, nearly perfect, and my test truck was $25,500. Yeah, I still, I think I would personally take, you know, a well-tuned Ford Focus over a Maverick, but then again, I was 
I was raised on hot hatchbacks, so that would be uh, the reason for that. And clearly you haven't watched my video because that you would definitely change your mind once you saw that built in to the tailgate were two, die, two um, tie-downs that are shaped as such that they can double as bottle openers. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice detailing. I like that type of uh, touch. That's very cool. Watch the 911 GT3 video for the excitement of it. The, just the sheer sound that engine makes as it revs to 9,000 RPM. Four liter flat six, naturally aspirated 9,000 RPM just sounds so glorious. It's just insane. Um, and I do it more than once. <laughs> I and think, then watch uh, the Ford Maverick for just some like neat practical. It's like, oh, that that's kind of clever. That's that's what you, that's what you get with those two. I think you you need to start a campaign, or we need to start a campaign to get you behind a GT3 wheel in an actual uh, race. I would not. <laughs> I am I am pro that campaign, and uh, it, and if you want to go ahead and start with all that money you get from your job. That'd be sweet. <laughs> but for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. Please, please, please seriously do check out those ads if you can, if you're in need of shaving or other things. And Finally, do please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Oh, Chris, what a lovely Wednesday morning. Just imagine, Robin, your GT3 resplendent in the ballsy logo. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Robin Warrior. Goodbye. (laughs) 